On today's show, we're talking to Reagan Holt, the former founder and CEO of Uprising Technologies, which was a venture that she started after serving as an advancement services leader at Northwestern University. Reagan is our newest full-time employee at Evertrue, and we're really excited to learn about her entrepreneurship and entrepreneurship journey and to see how she can help us take things to the next level here at Evertrue. Here we go. I'm Evertrue CEO Brent Grinna, and this is The Raise Podcast. We're talking to innovative advancement leaders who aren't satisfied with the status quo. Fundraising is in flux. Revenue's up, but donor counts are dropping. Phonathons are struggling and mass marketing isn't moving the needle. And our largest donors are increasingly feeling tapped out and they're challenging us to identify the next generation of supporters. But advancement isn't going extinct, it's being reinvented. Join us as we push the boundaries to ensure future generations can benefit from access to education. Welcome to today's episode of The Raise Podcast. I am very excited to introduce my newest colleague, Reagan, the Advancement Services Whisperer Holt. <laughs> Reagan, welcome to the show. Thanks. Glad to be here. Uh, Reagan and I first met several years ago when she was just starting out on her own entrepreneurial journey with a company called Uprising. And I can say that from uh, our first meeting and thereafter, I was very hopeful that we would get our, a chance to put our heads together and collaborate around the issues that we're trying to address in the advancement space. And so after uh, several years of getting to know each other and some friendly competition and also uh, some great recommendations among peers in the sector to try to collaborate, we have uh, come to an opportunity here where Reagan has just joined our team and is going to be helping uh, really take things to the next level from a, a, a data and insight perspective. And so uh, very excited to welcome you, Reagan. Thanks, Yeah, no, I'm really excited to, to be part of the team. So why don't you just give us a little bit of background on who you are and why I refer to you as the Advancement Services Whisperer, whether you like that or not. <laughs> well, I think... Um, my, you know, when I started in the advancement industry, it was really um, as a software trainer actually for uh, Advanced Web, which at that point in time was was from a company called BSR, and um, that was a long time ago, right? And so I spent most of my career at Northwestern University um, as a software trainer, and then I got into, you know, dabbled in report programming and writing data feeds and, um, eventually getting into portfolio management and, um, leading up efforts for all the advancement systems projects and new systems implementations. If I may, at what moment did you under, did you first get exposed to even what advancement is? I mean, that's a word that we all say so many times a day that when you move beyond the walls of the sector, most people don't even understand. But when was your introduction originally to yeah. the space? It was when I was interviewing at Northwestern. Prior to Northwestern, I worked at Gateway Computers as a software trainer. And um, when I went to interview at Northwestern, you know, they had posted this job for a software trainer and a help desk person. And, and I went to this interview and I was just blown away actually by um, the operation that goes into philanthropy. I remember walking in, they were in the middle of Campaign Northwestern, and I walked into the advancement office and they had, you know, a big sign that, that 
indicated how much they'd raised and I was sitting there waiting for them to come get me for the interview and I was looking at the sign thinking, oh my gosh. Um, and then I really got to understand it better as I was doing the training um, and training frontline fundraisers um, and annual fund folks and they were using acronyms like LIBUN, CYBUN, and PIBUN and I... Wait, what was, the, what was the last one you just said? And PIBUN. What, what's a PIBUN just for the sake of the audience? Uh, previous year, but not this year. Got to add that to the uh, acronym list, PyBunt. PyBunt, yeah, yeah. So I actually thought they were different kinds of bugs. And um, in my training materials then, whenever we talked about any of those, I had little ladybug bugs. And, uh, and so you're, you're in this, this uh, role coaching gift officers. And what is that like? what are you excited about in that role? You've got to have a whole host of personalities. I'm sure you had people who were really excited about embracing technology and probably at that time people who didn't even want to use email. Um, and so what was the sort of spectrum of uh, gift officers that you supported and I guess what stands out as in, in that part of your journey? Yeah, you know, I think, um, you know, if we think about it, I'm going to date myself here, but that was in 1999. I didn't ask you to date yourself, but you did. Okay, so it's 1999. Sets the context for um, where technology was at and advancement, right? Because I had people that didn't know how a mouse worked, and we were still using mouses with rollerballs. Um, and so, you know, I had people that I was training on how to use a system. They'd never used one before because prior to that it was a mainframe. Like, and... Um, it was, I mean, we were teaching them basically how does Windows work as well as how to use it advance and how to put in a contact report. So we had fundraisers sending their assistance because the fundraisers didn't want to have to use computers. Um, so it was definitely, a, it was kind of a different era at that point in time. And um, at that point, it was just trying to get folks to understand what, what was actually really a heavy lift from a user experience perspective because, you know, systems at that point were designed more to reflect the data model um, of the back end than they were to reflect how people actually worked. And so it was trying to get frontline fundraisers who didn't really care about technology at that point in time um, to be willing to change kind of how they worked to fit into this bucket that developers at some software company had predefined. And so at that time, you're meeting probably a, a majority, if not all of the, the frontline fundraisers at Northwestern. Are there any people who you met at that time as a trainer that you've uh, been able to sort of watch their careers advance? I mean, that, you know, that was basically 20 years ago. Uh, anybody stand out along the way where you know you remember teaching them advanced web and where are they now? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I would definitely say I, I didn't teach them advancement, but I was teaching them you know the CRM um, or doing help desk for them. But uh, some of the folks that I loved working with and that it's kind of funny to think about how our all of our careers have changed are um, Matt Termolin, uh, who's now up at Syracuse. Uh, he was, I think, uh, associate uh, development officer at the Weinberg College of Arts and Sciences at that point in time. Um, Eve Jeffers, who's now the head of advancement for the Art Institute of Chicago. Um, at that point in time, she was part-time um, working, I think, in foundation relations or corporate relations. Uh, Heather Ruggio and I actually both got into advancement around the same time. Um, so... 
yeah, it was, you know, there's just been a lot, a lot of folks that we've kind of stayed in touch with um, and or reconnected various times over the years. And so you're, you're working in that role, you're getting to know all of these folks, introducing them to technology that maybe they'd never been exposed to, um, but at the same time observing challenges, problems, gaps in the sector, and, and you were able to advance uh, your career uh, with some great upward mobility at Northwestern, but at the same time you started thinking about problems and opportunities. And I'm just curious, uh, which ultimately led you to found a company called Uprising, which we can talk more about, but when you sort of think about the slow burn, perhaps, that led to you ultimately taking the leap, what were some of the challenges or opportunities that you observed in that role? Right, yeah. I think, um, you know, when I got involved in advancement, um, the, the world was a bit of a different place. So, you know, we didn't have really mobile apps and we didn't have um, cloud apps. Uh, so it was, it was a different place. And over the kind of the years, the technology that I was working with wasn't changing, but the world was changing, right? So um, the society's adoption of consumer technologies in the workplace, everybody getting their own mobile device, um, so it just all increased expectations for among our staff, uh, as well as our external customers, like you know our alumni, our donors, our volunteers. You know everybody was expecting now to have apps on their mobile device that were as insightful and accurate and current as a, as social media, um, and they would you know be sent a, a spreadsheet, and so I think that was definitely um, something that throughout my career became a bigger and bigger sort of gap um, as sort of people became more technologically savvy in the workplace. Um, the other, you know, thing that was happening is legacy uh, applications. So the data, the underlying data and the siloed organizations that are managing that data um, made it really difficult for advancement and alumni relations to keep up with where people were. And people were changing jobs more often or, um, you know, moving around more often. And so all of this led to um, just a lot more data and um, us trying to take advantage of that data without actually um, having the more modern technology to, to work with. Um, and we can't just keep adding FTEs to deal with it, right? And so... I imagine, you know, one of the defining characteristics of this sector that we've always enjoyed is just how tight-knit it is, how collaborative it is. And I know within the advancement services space and within certain communities, whether it's the, the sort of legacy, you know, BSR, Advance, you know, now Lucian community, Blackbot communities, et cetera, there is a lot of sharing. And so I imagine that some of these challenges you were observing, you were also perhaps lamenting at conferences or were there key peers that... Uh, that you were able to confide in as you were thinking about how quickly the outside world was changing and how slowly it seemed like the advancement landscape was evolving? Yeah, um, I mean, we would all get together at conferences, right? Like some of the folks that, you know, I consider, you know, friends just because we've known each other so long, like, you know, Terry Callahan and Deb Cunningham and, and Heather and, 
um, oh gosh, there's, there's so many people, but we would all get together um, every year and talk about the challenges that we were facing and how people are solving different, um, different problems. Uh, and so, yeah, I mean, it really is a close-knit group and a lot of knowledge sharing and just a lot of really great people. And I imagine that there was a shared perspective, maybe not on the solutions, but on the problems that were facing the sector. There are a lot of people who have worked in those roles, um, who've experienced the same challenges that you experienced, who did not take the leap to start a company. And so what was it like going from observing the challenges around siloed data, legacy systems, slow ad adaptation and mobile, social, digital, to actually jumping and starting a company and, uh, and, and just sort of take me through the moments that led up to uh, that leap. Right, right. Um, there was actually a very specific sort of set of occurrences or sequence of events. Uh, when I was at Northwestern and we had been given this, uh, you know, objective by the new senior management who had come in um, at the presidential level, the VP of advancement, and then our, the board of trustees to really modernize um, how we interacted with our volunteers and our alumni through our online presence. And so uh, that involved to provide uh, the experience that we wanted to provide involved us going through a big RFP process and I was really kind of astonished that there weren't tools out there that did what what we needed to do without it requiring a huge amount of lift by by the team at Northwestern, right? So we we did we wound up having to build a bunch of custom stuff um, and integrate a lot of systems, and it we still couldn't really get it quite where we wanted it, right? Like there were still things that I had. Uh, you know, talked about with my colleagues at Northwestern and that we had brainstormed about and put on our, our wish list for the new platform, um, which is our Northwestern, that we weren't really fully able to, to deliver. So um, I had that in the back of my mind. And I was also on the uh, executive user group for one of the bigger uh, players in the industry when it comes to software. And they were talking about their new uh, software that they were building and going to be launching in the next few years. And I saw it and I didn't really feel like it was um, gonna solve some of those core operational problems. And the, there were still these gaps that I had had to fill or that my team had had to fill at Northwestern um, that weren't be, gonna be addressed by these new systems at, at that point in time that I was seeing, right? So I was frustrated by that because I was like, okay, this is gonna be a seven figure project um, and we're still not gonna be able to get where we need to get. Um, and at the same point in time, I was really frustrated by the fact that we were trying to tread water and keep up with all of the data and all of these data feeds and integrations. Um, but the amount of data was increasing and the complexity of data uh, was increasing. And we were, it's like we were just having a, a harder, we were getting pulled under, you know, um, by the undertow really of the data undertow. Um, and so, all of this sort of culminated in me being pretty frustrated. And then um, there were some personal life events that meant that I had to uh, change my role at, at Northwestern and, and transition from being a full-time employee to a consultant. Um, and at that point, a friend of mine had um, also, you know, he had been working with us at Northwestern as a consultant. 
um, and he and I stayed in touch and he gave me a call and he was like, hey, remember that thing you were trying to get us to do that search um, and that modern kind of experience you were trying to get us to do on the project at Northwestern? I'm playing around with some new data technology uh, and I think I can do it now. And he showed it to me and I saw it. And I was like, that's awesome. Let's show our friends at Northwestern and University of Chicago. Um, and so, I mean, that's really how it came about. It was, um, you know, him, so Mike Basil stumbling across, uh, or not stumbling, just starting to play with new technology and realizing that this new data technology allowed us to solve the problems that we couldn't solve with that legacy technology um, at Northwestern. You, I mean, one of the advantages you had from day one, which I will say I was very jealous of, is that you were really an insider and you had these pre-existing relationships and you could just call up Northwestern and U Chicago and get feedback at the earliest moments. And I was fortunate as an outsider to have uh, some incredible support via uh, folks at Brown where I had been a volunteer, but it's really different sort of being that uh, you know, ambitious volunteer who wants to improve things versus truly being somebody who had grown up in the sector. And so what was it like making some of those first basically customer discovery calls, probably reaching out to friends who you knew really well? Um, and, and, and how did you go from that initial concept of new technology is enabling solutions to problems we've all been dealing with that we don't believe the traditional vendors are going to address? What was the next step once you started getting that feedback? Yeah. Um... I mean, we just continued to build out a prototype and, you know, I, I will say one, one, definitely an area where, you know, I may have had, been an insider with advancement services, but you actually had been a volunteer trying to do fundraising, right? I never actually did fundraising. So um, I was building everything from an advancement services perspective because that was my, my, my realm. Um, and I knew the problems that we were having and, and trying to solve them. Uh, and I called actually, I, I basically we built out a little bit more of the proof of concept. And then I started calling up my friends. Um, I actually was living down in Tennessee at that point in time. And I called my friend Michael Carter at the University of Tennessee and said, hey, you want to meet for lunch? I want to you know, show you something. And I you know, pulled up my phone and showed it to him. Um, and he had said to me at that point in time, he said, you know, Reagan, the, the mobile stuff is, is great. Um, but you really, you, you got to go after data because data is really what's a big challenge for us. Um, and... I think that that was really a, you know, I still to this day when I see Michael, I'm like, you know, thanks for that that advice back in 2014. Um, because the the mobile experience is super important for frontline fundraisers, uh, advancement services, what's really important for advancement services is making sure those frontline fundraisers have the data they need to to be successful. No, I mean, I think that's why I'm excited about what we might be able to accomplish over the coming years because you know you just said you built everything from an advancement services perspective and we i think have probably been on the other end of the spectrum how do we really optimize for the frontline fundraiser for the annual giving professional for the end user um, and i think the right answer is somewhere in the middle which is the absolute best data possible but if that can't be exposed in in truly bleeding edge mobile and web uh, user experiences, it will not be activated as well as it can be. And so I feel like um, it's actually in an interesting way, 
you know, we went into this maybe naively assuming that of course advancement services would prioritize serving the advancement end user experiences over all else. Um, but there is some tension and conflict over what matters most. And I think that's probably been a challenge for us um, with some of the advanced services leaders in the space who maybe have been frustrated with how focused on the gift officer we are um, at the expense of perhaps some of the data-oriented work that you've done. So uh, you must have had a window into that. I'm, I'm curious to know, as you started Uprising, how aware you were of our work at Evertrue. You obviously had to look at it and say, they're doing some things well, but there are some clear gaps that I can go address. Uh, and I'm sure you had customers who shared that feedback as well. Yeah, I completely agree with your assessment that, um, you know, because of where you were coming from, you focused on that user experience. And, and because of that, um, Evertrue is really, you know, has a, has a great front end. Um, and has spent a lot more time thinking about what those frontline fundraisers need. Um, when I was, you know, selling with Uprising and helping, um, you know, our current clients, uh, that was honestly um, one of the things that we, when we were in competitive scenarios with Evertrue, that I, that's the, the feedback I got a lot from, you know, our friends Nadine and Peter at Pomona um, and a number of, of other folks was, you know, Evertrue's got this awesome front end and the frontline fundraisers really love it. We in Advancement Services really like the way that Uprising is going to help streamline the interfaces and improve the quality of the data. And it would be so awesome if you guys would partner. Um, and, you know, I think that when... I mean, that's why we wound up with some common clients, right? Um, was because for the schools that, that were able to do it, they wanted the best of both worlds and they were using both Evertrue and Uprising. Um, so, yeah, anyway, I don't I think I maybe got off topic there, but that's, I mean, I totally agree. I think that that's what, um, one of the things that's going to be great about working together. Yeah, no, absolutely. And so you, you just mentioned some of your early clients, but who was your very first client, you know, customer at Uprising? Who said yes first? Northwestern University. And uh, when you think about if there are other folks in the advancement space who've been thinking about starting a company in the sector, uh, I'd love to get your perspective, advice, lessons learned, learning curve as a new CEO. If there's somebody who's feeling pain or frustration out there, um, what guidance would you give? Well, you know, I think it starts with intrapreneurship, right? I mean, there are some of my friends in the industry are just doing an awesome job of really being entrepreneurs within their own organization. You know, some of the work that, um, you know, if I think about, obviously, you know, some of the, the folks I already mentioned, um, the folks like, you know, Sarah Barr and Ellen Marie Muehlbacher um, at University of Chicago, uh, Catherine Floyd. Um, so all of these folks, they're, they're all, you know, and so many of our clients, the reason that they started working with Uprising was because they had that innovative, that innovative sort of streak and they saw the, the need for it and they were willing to, to take that risk um, and put, you know, tr try to push things forward. Um, I think that it's starting with that, right? It's pushing things forward within your organization and encouraging agility um, and openness to adopting new technologies, um, taking the risks, knowing that they're risks. Um, obviously, you know, 
<laughs> some of them they took a risk on on uprising and it and I really appreciate it and I think we did make a lot of progress but um, we you know in the end you know I hope that they continue to do so and you know if somebody sees a challenge and they want to to solve it you know there's this sense of resignation that used to make me so mad uh, which is part of the reason that uprising is called uprising but you know, I can't tell you the number of times that I would be sitting in meetings and there had been people who had been at an, at an organization for a really long time and they'd say, oh, well, you know, this just isn't how we work. That's that's not how we do things. Um, that's not how we've been doing them for 20 years and we're fine. And, you know, my attitude is, you know, that's what Blockbuster said. Um, and, you know, that <laughs> that's what Tower Records said. Uh, I, so the reality is, is that we can't continue to have that attitude. So we need to start by just changing our the attitude and then change it internally. And if you've got an idea and you think that it can make a difference, um, then then go after it, right? That's whether you're it's internal to the organization or whether you're you're willing to really take the jump and you're in a situation where you can take a jump to start your own company. Um, either way, it's going to make a difference. Yeah, I uh, just had a LinkedIn exchange with a gentleman who is leading prospect research at an institution that will remain unnamed, but he, he was expressing that frustration yesterday. To be perfectly and painfully honest, the roadblock starts with a lack of leadership at many levels. That may change with our new president, but a monumental change in culture has to pl take place as well. So that guy, I think, has a little bit of uprising spirit there where he wants to you know, stand up, make change, affect change, and he just can't. Uh, he actually, uh, yeah, it, I, I won't go into more detail, but, but, I, but I do think that that is a, a huge issue. And obviously, we have gravitated towards customers and relationships for people who say, why not, as opposed to why might we do something different. Uh, and it really does take incredible commitment and persistence to get there because there are so many uh, cultural and budgetary roadblocks um, for sure. It's, it's ironic that, you know, we have many customers that will spend millions of dollars on new systems that are described after the fact as okay, fine, not great, or horrible, right? Some, somewhere on that spectrum. Uh, cannot think of a single conversation I've had with somebody who said, got our new CRM, it is incredible. Right. Like, why is that? After millions. Now, I can think of a lot of Uprising customers who described Uprising as being really incredible, game-changing, innovative. We have a lot of customers who describe us in that manner, mm -hmm. and we're not charging millions of dollars. And so where's the, where's the disconnect? Why is it sometimes easier to sell a, a million-dollar, just okay, fine, or not great solution relative to a much lower cost, higher quality solution? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's to some extent, you know, people feel they feel safe with things that are comfortable and the a lot of the big players that are um, sort of replatforming the same operational business processes um, that makes sense to people who have, have the decision making power and the budget to make big decisions because it is uh, providing a, a modern skin on this 20-year-old world they're used to working in. Um, 
I, I absolutely agree that I mean, there are a lot, a lot of organizations out there that do have, you know, folks that are, are seeing the, um, the need to, to really take a step back and say, you know, before we spend, you know, two, three, four, five million dollars on a systems implementation project, let's really look at how is this going to help our operation. Um, and those are the conversations that I think are really exciting to have and thinking about not just how the software um, is going to work, but or what technology it's going to use, but, you know, what, how is it going to just change how people work? And, um, yeah, I mean, I, it was really interesting to me when I was at, um, you know, Northwestern, I was there through a number of senior management teams and um, they're all, you know, all great. Northwestern is an awesome institution. I'm a big, you know, bleeding purple person. But I, you know, I will say that one of the things that's awesome about the team that's there now is that, um, you know, they, they are willing to kind of push, to push the envelope and really use data to, um, to drive uh, improvements in fundraising. Um, and that's what we're seeing at, you know, organizations like MIT and a lot of these, the schools that are really um, thinking in a more sort of strategic, proactive sort of futuristic way about how things can function. Yeah, I think that's a good segue. We've talked a lot about the past, the history, lessons learned with Uprising. Let's talk a little bit about the future. You've spent the last several years, right, assessing our work, the competitive landscape and the advancement sector in general, gaps and so forth. When you think about um, now being a team member at Evertrue, what are the weaknesses that you're most excited uh, to improve on? here at Evertrue? I mean, I really, I think that, you know, Evertrue, the, the platform as it is now has a lot of awesome things that um, I wish that we had had the resources or time to do or were on my wish list for Uprising. Um, but I do think that um, we can make it even, even better by improving uh, the ease of integrations, the speed with which we uh, interact with data, push and pull data, the types of data. Um, and then thinking about how we can use um, sort of automation of, of data ingestion and uh, merging and, and identity resolution to make uh, fundraising much more powerful and to really identify, um, you know, what people are passionate about and find people that really would love to support specific causes that may not align with their academic affiliation. Um, and I think that that is uh, where, you know, I think Evertrue has started to make progress when it comes to pulling in the Facebook data, but, uh, and some of the engagement data. And I, th I just think we can blow that out and take it a lot farther. I, I agree. And I, you know, we've had a bunch of conversations where there is a paradigm shift occurring that is enabled by data that, aligns with what fundraisers have always wanted to do, which is understand what somebody's interested in and then find a way to map those interests to philanthropic opportunities. And I think that so many fundraisers have started with a list of capacity rated individuals and not much else and been told to go out and get to know those people and do their prospecting and do the cold outreach. And I think that there is such an opportunity to flip that and really start with knowing what people are interested in based on online and offline behaviors that can be aggregated and then 
uh, displayed in a very intuitive manner so that before I reach out to that individual, yes, I'll know their capacity, but I also have a really good sense of how they've been engaged, what they've been engaged with, what they might be interested in more broadly. And that is such a massive leap forward. It, it sounds simple, but I think this idea of starting with interests and then working towards philanthropic capacity versus starting with capacity and then spending all this time trying to get a meeting is really going to be a game changer. And it already is becoming one for many of our partner institutions. Yeah, yeah, I completely agree. Um, and I think one of the things I, I love about you know, the opportunity to collaborate with you and your perspective is you will say words like automation of data ingestion or identity resolution, which sometimes can just go over people's heads. Like, why does that matter? Those are buzzwords or technical buzzwords. Why does that matter to me as a fundraiser? And I think you also said things like, by doing those things, we can better understand what people are interested in or what they care about. And so it's not the technology for the sake of the tech, but really, you know, our mission at Evertrue is to build relationships in pursuit of a better world. We really think technology can make that happen and enable that. And a lot of the, the, the technical um, improvements that you're going to help us uh, execute, I know, are going to align with that objective. When you think about um, the higher ed sector more broadly, zooming out, if you could wave a wand and just change one thing about advancement or one thing about the sector, are there any items that, that stand out or, or burning uh, issues that you'd really like to address? Yeah, I mean, I think that the number one thing would be improved agility um, and the ability to accelerate how quickly um, things adjust to adapt to the world around us, right? So I, I just think that a philosophical shift um, you know, needs to take place across the enterprise and from the top down that recognizes that, you know, technology and data management are no longer, you know, back office maintenance tasks. Um, and they need to recognize that they are strategic assets that will become increasingly critical to gaining the philanthropic support that's required for these organizations to continue to make that meaningful positive change that they're going for. Um, you know, when a when I was, you know, getting into the industry, at almost every school that I went to, including our own, the IT staff and the um, the bio and the records teams were, were frequently, you know, in the basement, not included in the meetings, um, thinking about the future. And, you know, I, we are starting to see with some of these more, you know, forward thinking organizations where they're creating, um, you know, entire senior level positions about, uh, you know, strategic operations and rethinking how they, how they organize uh, data and um, their just business functions to really prioritize the use of technology to improve how they're operating. And so I just hope that that, um, you know, I guess if I had, I had one wish, it would be improving, you know, the agility and the way that people think about uh, data, right? Yeah, no, and I think one of the challenges or opportunities for folks that are in more data-oriented positions is how do we talk about the impact of the recommendations that we're making, right? We, we talk so much about data or social or digital or apps or mobile or trip planning or, or whatever it may be. But if you're gonna get buy-in from a senior leader, you've gotta be able to talk about revenue, 
pipeline, productivity, retention, upgrades, and you've got to be able to quantify that. And if you cannot connect, whether it's us as a vendor or you as an entrepreneur trying to make change at an advancement organization, if you cannot map a technology recommendation to some kind of business metric and, and that is measurable and uh, uh, ideally revenue-oriented, I think it's an uphill battle. And so that's a challenge for us. I know it was a challenge for you. I think it's a challenge for a lot of the aspiring entrepreneurs in the sector um, who don't want to be you know, Milton from office space in the basement. I just had an image of that as you were describing. You know. I almost said that too, the red staplers. Yeah. So no more red staplers. Uh, we got to rise up out of the basement. And, uh, and you know, we're, we're excited about being, you know, being a partner in that journey because it, it really is, again, at that intersection of the data engagement analytics, but then aligning that with workflows and user experiences that are going to drive revenue. And we've got to be able to, um, you know, effectively prove that, guarantee it. Otherwise, the, the iner inertia is too strong. One thing you, you'll, you'll appreciate, one of our clients, when we indexed their data for the first time um, and aggregated data from their CRM with uh, data from you know, third-party systems as, as well as integrated systems. Um, within the first week, we found that organization 750 new major gift prospects that hadn't been tapped. And so I, I think, you know, it's coming up with with metrics like that and helping these organizations see that, that possibility. Like, look, here are all these people that have the capacity and the interest and the personal passion to support your organization that we're able to help you, you know, build a relationship with. Um, by identifying them, you know, with with this data and technology, and the more statistics that we can get like that, the easier it's going to be for those entrepreneurs to make the case, right? Absolutely, and I think it's an, uh, incumbent on us to not only be able to use data to surface those 750 new prospects instantly, okay, but then we need to be able to measure what happens and. Did that 750 new prospect pool turn into 75 new proposals, which turned into 7.5 gifts that equal $10 million? That is how we are going to really be able to really prove the ROI. And you know, we've been talking a lot about this idea of the giving funnel, and I think you've been so focused on this identification and discovery layer. We've been a little bit more focused on the prospect development moves management solicitation closed stewardship phase that I think putting that together is going to allow us to not only do the identification, but really ensure that after identification, action happens, that follow-up happens, and that we're able to measure the impact and the outcome. And I'm, I'm very, very excited to work on that together. When you think about other, um, I don't know, closing thoughts, questions for me, or just uh, reflections as you start this new chapter at Evertrue, I'd, I'd, I'd welcome uh, uh, you know, any additional commentary. You know, I I think the, the, the main thing that that um, that I just still continue to believe in and to, to hope uh, continues to happen is that, um, you know, those entrepreneurs and innovators within the organizations um, don't get frustrated and um, give up, right? Like, I think that we just have to, all of us have to keep pushing forward and um, keep trying. And that's the only way that we're really going to help higher education um, 
see this sort of, um, you know, pivotal, like, jump in our, in the evolution of how we operate as far as uh, advancement goes. So I think it's a, a great concluding thought. And, and so I'm going to just go ahead and dedicate this episode to all those entrepreneurs. Rise up, don't give up. Okay, that's our, our message. We are excited to be partners on the journey. Excited to have the Advancement Services Whisperer uh, on our team. I know many of you out there are excited that you can talk to Reagan instead of me at Evertrue, and that's all good. Um, uh, uh, we're, we're, we're humble enough to acknowledge that and excited about uh, where this can all lead. So with that, Reagan, thank you for being an entrepreneur and entrepreneur in the sector uh, and for pushing us over the last several years and hopefully pushing us a lot more uh, over the next several years. Um, so with that, we're going to close today's episode. Thank you, Reagan. Signing off. Great. Thanks. Bye-bye.